Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, I wanted to tell you, you made fun of me for like just eating snacks at my desk all day and never getting lunch. Yes. After you did that, I went out and got an egg sandwich from Dunkin' Donuts. Wow. And ate it at my desk. And ate it at your, so it was still a sad <laughs> desk lunch. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Look, I just think that the the it'd be fine if you took a break, but I do feel like you really need to be eating lunch yeah, every day. That's true. <laughs> I I had a great experience this morning on the train train ride in. I know we're still getting used to like coming into the office yeah, things, rough. but I did. I it was on the train this morning and it was late and I was flustered and kind of you know cramming for an interview we had mm-hmm. um, and spilt uh, just spilt my coffee all oh, over no. the seat in front oh, of me. No. And this woman just like stopped what she was doing reached put her book down reached deep into her bag and handed me a tissue oh. and i was like oh my god thank you <laughs> she thought it was for cleaning up the coffee but then you started crying uh, yeah and then i just was weeping <laughs> at the goodness of humanity that still exists so i'm feeling great i'm, I'm glad we're, we're, we're back in the office figuring out lunch and commute yep. and podcasting still yes but we've got a really exciting show this week who are we talking to we are bringing back our friend brother guy Consolmagno. Guy is a Jesuit and the director of the Vatican Observatory, as well as the president of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. You might remember that we had him on was it a couple years ago now. Yeah, yeah. Um, his his main thing is space, but we have a different topic for him this week. Yeah, uh, it feels like there's been a lot of just like science talk in the news uh, the past year and a half, um, and it feels like a lot of us could use a refresher on maybe the scientific method or the way that science works in public life and the way that religion should relate yeah. to it. Yeah, what we can and cannot ask of science is yes. something a lot of people have been struggling with in the past and during this pandemic. Yeah, maybe this past year and a half, you've been tempted to, you know, interrogate some of the science that's getting published. Everybody, everybody's doing their own research. Not not everybody, but, you know, even the people that are, quote, doing their own research or being refuted by people doing their own research and relying on things. So if that's been you, if you've been going down some rabbit holes on Google, trying to figure out how to make sense of all the different studies that are published, we get into all that and more with Brother Guy. Yes. Uh, and Brother Guy also had a drink recommendation for us. He's usually based in in Rome at the Vatican Observatory there. So he recommended a Frascati white wine, which we were unable to find in Midtown yeah, Manhattan. Yeah, so then, then we tried to look for any wine from the Lazio region. Also unable to do that. <laughs> so we went uh, to nearby Abruzzo and got a Montepulciano d'Abruzzo to drink. Yes. So still an Italian red. Yep. All right. Cheers. All right, so stick around for our conversation with Brother Guy Consolmagno. 
But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? Man, uh, Pope Francis delivered a barn burner yeah. speech over the weekend. <laughs> I, I took some time off this weekend, so I was pretty checked out. I saw, I checked into Twitter briefly, saw people really freaking out about the speech that the Pope had given, and finally got around to reading it this week. And man, it is good stuff. Mm-hmm. Some people are calling it a mini encyclical because he, he goes through kind of the church's social teaching and how it applies to this moment. You know, he's talked a lot about how we are going to come out of this pandemic different and we could be better or we could be worse. And so he's really taking taking this time. He was speaking to the Fourth World Meeting of Popular Movements and laying out what a better, more human-centric economy would look like. Yeah. And it really was, I felt like, a summation of, you said, many encyclical um Fratelli Tutti, I think. And you know, we did a reading group with um, some Patreon supporters last year. And if you didn't get around to reading Fratelli Tutti, or even if you did, and this is a great way. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, these are the cliff notes. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try and do the cliff notes of the cliff notes on this show right now. But it really, it's it's very, very manageable to, to find this online and we'll link to it and yeah. read the whole thing. Yeah. So some of the top line takeaways is part where he's you know, saying, you know, what are some actions we can take? He mentions the universal basic income. So this idea that everyone should be paid um, a living wage or wage that gives them some some floor, some basic um, access to, to, you know, the ne- necessities of human life. And something we were excited about, he called for a shorter workday. And, you know, what I really appreciated here, this is, uh, it's not just a shorter workday so we can, you know, drink more wine and hang out. <laughs> um, but it's explicitly so that, hey, I mean, yes, so people can rest and are not so consumed by being cogs in the machine, but it's to give people, other people access to the labor market, right? So you don't have fewer people working longer, you have more people working less. Because one of the things that's unique, I think, in, in Catholic social teachings approach to the dignity of work is that it is inherently dignifying in that, you know, human beings should be given an opportunity to work in addition to, you know, having their needs met and, you know, maybe through universal basic income. Yeah, so these otherwise. two things together kind of, you know, work to, yes, provide for people's needs, but also provide the dignity of work. Yeah. Um, and he does say, he says, you know, these are places to possibly start. They are not uh, going to solve everything, but they should be explored. Yeah, a couple other highlights from this. He um, explicitly mentioned the uh, Black Lives Matter protest following the murder of George Floyd uh, last summer uh, uh, as a a concrete example of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He called these protesters like they did not pass by to the other side of the road when they saw someone who had been beaten and killed. Right. So his audience is it's called the popular movements, and it's made up of grassroots activists working in all over the world in different economic and social justice um, movements. So he saw this as kind of like an example of what those kind of movements can do at their best. And he he used this term that I had never seen before. He said the collective Samaritan. So, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan focuses on what we can do as, you know, or it's interpreted as what we can do as individuals. But he's kind of widening that out to, you know, what can groups do to be Samaritans along the way. Right. Taking that idea of personal sin, structural sin, but also personal virtue and structural virtue. Yeah. Fascinating. He also really like took uh, umbrage at some pretty major sectors of the world economy. Um, He explicitly called out, quote, in the name of God, pharmaceutical industries, financial and credit institutions, extractive industries, food corporations, arm manufacturers and dealers, tech giants, uh, telecommunications, 
the media, us included, yeah. um, and in powerful countries. You know, there, he has a laundry list of the many <laughs> ways that they make the world a worse place. Yes. And one thing I thought was really, I don't know, classic Pope Francis is he he as he's introducing these, you know, uh, in the name of God, you know, his social commandments, he's like, look, I get people are sick of me harping on this. And I'm a he, pest, he says. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I know I'm always pestering on it, but I'm going to say it again. And he really defended himself against critics um, who say, you know, you know, Pope Francis, stay in your lane. You talk about religion and spirituality and let the experts talk about politics and economics and social issues. Um, and he he points out that, like, this is not just him. Pope, uh, Pope John Paul II had things to say about Catholic social teaching, as did Benedict. Um, and so these are part of church teaching. So very much in his lane. Yeah, I I thought I said this up top, but that this is really radical stuff in some ways and really exciting to read. I mean, so he's he's really saying this is an urgent moment to to make a change in how we we construct our social lives. What's our next story, Ashley? We're going to talk a little bit about godparents because this month the Diocese of Catania in Sicily enacted a three-year ban on naming godparents at baptisms and christenings. And they justified this by saying, you know, it's become a pretty secular uh practice and lost its spiritual significance and is now more about cementing family ties or even ties in the mafia. Yeah, this is coming from a report in the New York Times, um, which I found very, I don't know, just fascinating. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're pointing, you know, it's networking, which I think we have some of that here. Maybe the, the mob connection is not as prominent as yeah. here in the United States as it is in Sicily. But I do think there's something to this idea of, you know, what is the role of the godparent today is it totally just like a nice like function ceremonial thing like oh you've been like your 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 parents friend for a while um or are you supposed to be someone that's like raising helping contribute to the you know spiritual formation of this child or person being baptized jason horowitz the reporter for the new york times uh reports that in in at least sicily it has become more a networking opportunity for families looking to improve their fortunes, secure endowments of gold necklaces, and make advantageous connections, sometimes with local power brokers who have dozens of godchildren. So I, I just found it fascinating because this is a very different godparent culture than I think we have here in the U.S. Like, yes, here it has become, for some families, not more more secular you know you you choose your friend that you want to honor and maybe don't give as much thought about the role they'll have in their children's lives but i also was i was sympathetic to some of the families interviewed in this piece cuz one of them says you know don't throw the baby out with the bathwater you know so, so for some families this is an important thing and <laughs> it doesn't seem like this is the best way to go after the mafia you know they're going to keep maybe in doing this informally, even if the church doesn't recognize it? Well, I don't, it's, that's a tough, tough, tough thing because there's nothing really like in the inherent to the, to the sacrament itself that requires yeah. godparents, right? right? And if it, it's become a, a really way to formalize a structure, a literal structure of sin, that is the mafia, then the church really has to be very careful about how it interacts with that. And you know, if you've been paying attention, Pope Francis has been really going after the mob. He's been, you know, trying to excommunicate them, get the Virgin Mary imagery yeah, out of there. He's, uh, or I don't know if he started it himself, but he blessed a think tank that was dedicated to, you know, taking the Virgin Mary back from the mafia, who often, you know, 
co-ops. You know, <laughs> co-opt her image, yeah. yeah. So this is also happening in the context of the the church's fight with the mafia in Italy. And it's important to note, this is sort of a, it's a three-year ban. So it, in some ways, the diocese is looking at this as an experiment. Let's see what happens. Um, but I, I do wanted to get your take on it, just in terms of like, what would that look like here? Um, or do we do we still need godparents today in the United States, maybe, you know, outside the context of the mafia connections, because they're, the point about it becoming, you know, a secularized is, I think, has some some credence to it, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like we have the opposite problem. In the, well, maybe not the opposite, but there are often so many barriers to choosing godparents in the United States, or at least I've had friends who've had experiences of just like there is so much red tape for getting people to be recognized in the church as eligible godparents. So even when my friend was trying really hard to like choose people that she thought would, you know, be good, you know, influences in the faith for her daughter, um, there was like problems of them. I don't know if it's they didn't get married in a Catholic church or something, but. Um, or like mass, I, I don't know, you somehow sometimes have to prove mass attendance. Yeah. Which feels I like basically trying to prove that you're a good Catholic Um, As soon as you go down that road can be like really weird and alienating. Um, And I get like the the idea behind the church wanting to, you know, make sure that it is like a a real it's a spiritual relationship. But after after checking, you know, quote unquote, if they're a good Catholic, I don't know that there's a ton of formation. I mean, certainly I I, this made me think uh, I have a godson and I'm like, shoot, am I am I being a good godfather? Mm -hmm. I'd like to think I'm at least a practicing Catholic, if not a good one. But I have really not a ton of to go on on how to, you know, best help my my godson here. Yeah, no, I had a I have a similar experience because I my godparents you know, they're my aunt and uncle. I love them, but they have not been involved in my faith life in any significant way since my baptism. Um, and now I've become a godmother to my to my niece. Uh, and I and so yeah, I don't have a model. I do. I you know want to um, be involved, and I'll do. You know, I'll be there for all of the sacraments. But beyond that, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's gonna be like gonna get to heaven, and God's gonna be like, hey, you were on the hook. <laughs> over this. And yeah. I'm sorry you didn't realize it, but now we're going to have to talk about it. No. So um curious what people think, because I do think you're important. Your, your, your point about it not being red tape, because any red tape around the sacrament of baptism just like frustrates me to no end because that should just be, that's something that should be given freely. And so if you've got thoughts on this, please, please, please send them in. We'll start a post in the Facebook group over this, but please write r- write to us. Let us know what you think. Read them on the show next week if we get some good stuff. You can send us an email at jesuitical at americamedia.org. And now stick around for our conversation with Brother Guy Consolmagno. Joining us from Tucson is Brother Guy Consolmagno. Brother Guy is the director of the Vatican Observatory and president of the Vatican Observatory Foundation. Welcome back to Judgmental, Brother Guy. It's great to be here. It's great to see you, um, at, at least through a screen. Um, I know normally we're talking to you about what's going on in space and how the Vatican is interested in that, but we're we're hoping to bring it a little bit down to earth uh, with everything that's been going on the past, uh, I guess, year and a half now, because I feel like there's a lot of attention being paid to science, at least to some degree. And I feel like there's a lot of conflicting things going around, uh, particularly within religious and Catholic communities about how to understand science and, and, and what to think about it. Maybe just like, what's that been like? Have you have you noticed that? Have you, do you, have your ears been burning more? Absolutely. And uh, it occurs to me that 
the same problem that we have in literature or especially science fiction, which is the kind of literature I'm really familiar with, that we have in this understanding of science. Let me give you an example. There was a trashy science fiction series of 80 years ago, uh, the Lensman series written in the classic American style where they're the good guys and the bad guys and the good guys are always right and the bad guys are always wrong. And then you've got, uh, say, Lord of the Rings, where our hero is fallible. And at the end, the character who you thought of was a villain turns out to play an essential role. If you think the world is full of good guys and bad guys, perfection and imperfection and destiny is, is set in stone before you get there, you're a Calvinist. You're not a Catholic. <laughs> we have in America too much a Calvinist idea of science that it must always be right or else it's always wrong. And if it's not always right, then we shouldn't trust it. We shouldn't believe in it. We should, you know, just walk away from it. Science is more like Frodo. Science is going to be wrong on occasion, and yet we have to trust it. Science is great precisely because it knows that it can be wrong and that it is always in need of redemption and always in need of perfection. And that doesn't mean that we trust it less. That means that we trust it more intelligently. That means that we don't immediately write off everything a scientist says because they got one thing wrong once and we don't want to believe it. But it also doesn't mean that we put blind faith in it. I think there's room for, for all of the different realms of how people understand you know, the virus and the COVID and the, the vaccines. It's good to be a little bit skeptical, but you shouldn't be unskeptical of your skepticism. Sure. So yeah, let's let's apply this specifically to the pandemic. So, you know, there are people who say early on Dr. Fauci was saying no one should wear masks and now he's saying we should wear masks or people were minimizing the dangers early on and now they're making us go into lockdowns. Um so why why shouldn't that lead us to to distrust the scientist? It's partly because we're hearing things secondhand. We always hear things secondhand. And it's partly because there were reasons to say something once, and those reasons don't apply because the world has changed. The virus has changed over the last year. But also the availability of masks was very different you know, in early 2020 than it is now. And certainly that means that you apply things differently. But let's also give these guys a break. They have the right to sometimes get it wrong. And the best we can do is say, I'll listen to you, and I expect you to be honest enough to tell me when you got it wrong, and to say, oops, we were too quick in saying you didn't have to wear a mask because it looks like maybe you do. We should be more willing to allow fallibility in others because it allows us to accept fallibility in ourselves. You know, it, it, to go back to the Catholic world. They say that a lot of people don't like to go to confession anymore because nobody wants to admit that they've sinned. <laughs> no, certainly not me. <laughs> and, you know, God is offering you forgiveness. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is say, I'm sorry. And we're so proud we won't say we're sorry. Mm -hmm. But if we allow ourselves to admit that sometimes we're wrong, then we allow others to sometimes admit that they were wrong. You know, I feel like I had a... A revelation this year that my uh, of my own relationship to science, where I was having some conversations with 
um, some family members who were like having a hard time processing just some of the pandemic news and vaccine news. And I feel like I, I myself went through this thing, and I think this is common for a lot of people where you treat scientists or, or doctors. I think doctors are probably most people's like direct relationship to science. And you assume that these people are like wizards. They're godlike, right? They give you this pill and it fixes this thing. Until one day, maybe like the doctor doesn't have all the answers or gives the wrong treatment. And that sort of shatters this like naivete about what they can do. And the the real work then is just trying to, you know, discover that like, okay, these guys are, <laughs> these guys and girls are just smart people doing the best they can. That became really clear for me because my college roommate uh, ended up becoming a physician. And so I was able to see that this like guy who was sometimes an idiot that I was partying and playing video games with was also like the smartest person I knew. But for a lot of people, that's really hard. And I think that's also a lot of people's relationship to religion. Absolutely. I'll go back to, to a really mind-blowing experience talking to Captain Kirk. It was about 10 years ago, I got to meet William Shatner, <laughs> you know, the actor who played Captain Kirk on, on Star Trek. And I mentioned I was a Jesuit and a scientist, and this totally shattered them. How can you do that? How can you do that? And as I talked to him, it suddenly hit me. He thought that religion was a big book of facts, and science was a big book of facts. And if the facts in the one book don't agree with the facts in the other book, then one of the books has to be wrong. Hmm. And where do you get this idea that science is a big book of facts? Well, that's how we teach science, especially to kids. Get the answer in the back of the book and you pass the course. That's how we teach religion, especially to kids. But, you know, let's be sad about it, but, but truthful about it. Most people stop relig learning religion when they get confirmed. Most people stop learning science when they get out of high school. And they never get to the good part. Mm. They never get to the living science is not, you know, answering what we know, but poke it around in the stuff we don't know, where you learn by being wrong. And, and religion is not, you know, reciting Bible verses. It's being aware of our fallibility and to stop trying to make ourselves perfect by not doing anything at all, by freezing, by hiding in a corner. Well, so that makes it, you mentioned that people kind of stopped their scientific education in high school, religious ed education after confirmation. I'm wondering what you think of this parallel of, you know, when we had the printing press, everyone got to read their Bible and come to their own conclusions. And now with the Internet, everyone can do their own uh, scientific and medical research and come to their own conclusions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, yes. oh, that's lovely. It's, it's, it's true. But it's, it's absolutely true. You you think that you can work it out for you, but you think you can work out your own salvation. Yeah. But like there's there's an that, instinct, a curiosity yeah. that I think maybe you would want to encourage, but how do you put up the guardrails? <laughs> this is the, uh, it's tied into that whole sense of I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Um, and I see it, I think the most stark way to get people to see this is to remind folks as a professional scientist and any physicist at any university, you get emails two or three times a week of somebody who's discovered the secrets of the universe in their basement, <laughs> and they've discovered that Einstein was wrong, and they've got it all worked out, and if you just watch my YouTube video, I will explain why, you know. And your first reaction is just throw them away. These guys are crackpots. Your second reaction ought to be, 
Why are they telling me this? Mm. Why are they doing all this work? It's not that they're stupid, because you have to be really clever to get yourself into the kind of messes that they get themselves (laughs) into. But it's because they've not been able, for whatever reasons, they've not been able to be part of the conversation that is science. But science only progresses as a community that's in conversation with all the other scientists and with in conversation with the scientists who are long dead, but who have you know set the parameters of the conversation. Religion's the same way. You can't just jump in, read the Bible, and think you've got the answers if you don't realize that there is a whole conversation of people that go into that Bible. That when people were writing those particular passages in Scripture, they were reacting against not only the the politics of the day, the poetry of the day, the the scripture pieces that had been written previously that they wanted to talk about. Uh, I'll go back to my science fiction example. There is a very popular science fiction writer, John Scalzi, who's writing great space operas. And you can read him and really enjoy it. But you get twice as much if you've read the classic science fiction of 50 years ago that he's responding to. That he's saying, yeah, that's what Robert Heinlein said. but Let's look at it with a different point of view, and you can see that there's more going on. If you don't know the context of the conversation, you're missing out on half the fun. If you don't know that this song is an answer to that song from 10 years ago, then it's just a, a, a little ditty and you don't appreciate what's happening. But it means we have to live in a community, and we have to listen to each other. Science is not the, you know, Doc... <clears throat> Doc, what's his name from Back to the Future, who's Doc Brown Brown. hiding in his garage? It is a community of people talking to each other. And religion, yeah, is the same way. I want to tease this out a little bit more because within our religious tradition, we sort of have pretty clear hierarchies and guardrails uh, about what that conversation can include and doesn't include and who's the ultimate authority in it. And, you know, for us, that's obviously the Pope. Uh, So does science need a pope to kind of set the rules? Because I feel like a lot of people tried to make a Jesuit-educated Dr. Anthony Fauci the pope, and that's had some mixed success. Well, and even the pope doesn't want to be the pope right? in that sense. Science does have guardrails, and sometimes they fail, but more often than not, they work. And it's called peer review. It's called you know publishing your data. That's why They had a vaccine available in May of 2020, but it wasn't available to the rest of the world until December because it took six months to make sure that it didn't have some really horrible, unexpected side effects. Could you just back up quickly and just because I feel like this is really important, um, outlining just the basic elements of of, of peer review and publishing your data. Okay, so I've got let's say I have a really cool idea. And I think this idea fits into the conversation that everybody else is. We've all been talking about uh, how meteorites, which is my field, um, have a particular isotope. And I go, oh, I think I know where that isotope comes from. Number one, my cool idea is built into the conversation that was already out there. How do I tell everybody else about my cool idea? I can go around and chat about it at meetings, and that's how people get the idea. Great. But eventually, I have to write it down into a paper. And this does two things. First of all, it makes me clarify the ideas. 
when you write it down, you, you suddenly realize, oh, there is this hole that I forgot to talk about. And oh, there was this other thing. But finally, you prepare it. You send it to a scientific journal. The editor receives the paper and says, this looks like something that uh, Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones have been working on. I will send copies of these papers to Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones. And in a month, they have to tell me their, what, what do they think. And usually it's a pretty thorough, um, you ought to clarify this part. You, you misquoted this thing. So-and-so already said that four years ago over here. And you made a mistake in the math in this place. I would believe it more if you did statistics on this. It's a long and thorough list of what you could do to improve the paper. And it might even be as far as saying, you're wrong. It doesn't work because of such and such. These things, the editor then collects, and they won't tell you who Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones was, but they'll send it back to you. And then you'll say, oh, he misunderstood me, or oh, he's an idiot, or oh, I know who that is, and he doesn't like me, <laughs> whatever it is. Sure. But you have to respond. And you respond to the editor, who is supposedly the neutral judge, saying, da 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 this is how I can fix it. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I can fix that, but my conclusions are the same. Or maybe even, he's right. I goofed. <laughs> and you withdraw the paper. But it's only after it's gone through that process that the paper finally gets published. It's not foolproof because maybe Dr. Smith really does have it in for you. Mm -hmm. Maybe Dr. Jones doesn't understand what you're trying to do. Um, and yet, you have to have this interaction with other people before you can do science. And the same thing has to occur in a religion. You can't just come up with, an, oh, I've got a great idea of talking about God. Because number one, maybe somebody's already had that idea and it didn't work then. <laughs> number two, maybe while that idea sounds great to you, the words you're using are going to totally mislead people and they're going to hear something totally different from what you thought you were saying. Or number three, Maybe it really is going to help a lot of people, but you can only do that by talking among a smaller community before you release it to the world. It's funny, Zach came to you asking if science needs a pope, and it sounds like the you know the guardrails for science is this like radical transparency, um, which is maybe something that the church could learn from Use science. A more of. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I I think so. I think that. Uh, one of the things I would love to see in you know discussion of you know is a work uh, coherent with church teaching would be to have it out there. This is my idea, and I'm not sure it's right. And have this kind of discussion in the literature. You can have that in in theological literature, but too often you know the the old way of doing science. The master says, "No, don't do that." Um, is still holding over a bit. And I think that's what Pope Francis is attempting to do. He doesn't want to be the guy who has to read every paper and say, yes, no, yes, no, um, because A, he doesn't have the time, and B, he doesn't have the expertise on everything. And more to the point, you don't want to stifle a good idea that's almost correct but has a couple of you know flaws that really needs work. But underneath all of this is, first of all, the sense that you need a community, and second of all, the realization that nobody's ever going to have it completely right, that there's always room to improve. What's interesting is what you've seen in throughout the pandemic is 
people who are, because of the internet, feel like they're doing something like peer review. I've got this theory on the vaccines and the effects of different um, mandates and lockdowns, and I've got this data and I'm going to publish it on my Facebook page or my YouTube channel for, for all the world to see. And so in some ways that feels like transparency. And then you've almost got, you've got communities that you can tap into of either that are other people who are subscribed to this view that maybe it would get rejected in a, in, in a, a real peer review, but it feels like, I, I don't know, there's something close to that. What's the, what's the difference in the danger there? The, the difference is whether you're talking to a community or to an echo chamber. If everybody that you talk to agrees with you, you're doing it wrong. And I think that's true of religion. That's true of science. Um, speaking as a, you know, 70-year-old celibate, that's true of love relationships. <laughs> I, I was 20 years in the dating world before I finally, you know, entered the Jesuit order. And I can tell you of all the times, you know, all the girls I dated, the common problem was we didn't I was afraid to have an argument. I didn't trust them or the relationship enough to have an argument. Whereas when you love somebody, you're willing to argue with them, stick up for what you believe, listen to them, and see if you can come to because a relationship based on trust and love can survive arguments. But if you're if you're afraid of an argument, then you don't have love. Yeah. So how would you um, apply that to, say, you uh, were in a relationship or knew someone who's skeptical of the vaccine, is scared to go there. Um, you don't want to end that relationship, but you want to engage with that person. What, what advice would you have? <sighs> Pretty much the same way that you do with anyone with whom you disagree. You don't argue with them. No one was ever convinced by a syllogism. And uh, in some ways, you know, the sociologists tell us the more logical they are, the more able they are to fool themselves into thinking they were right. Does that mean relying on scientific arguments might not be the best way to go? If you're trying to deal with somebody who already has a strong opinion, um, I think the evidence is that even in the face of strong scientific arguments, that, ah, the vaccine is untested. This, no vaccine in history has been tested as much as this particular vaccine. But they're not going to listen to that. What you do instead, um, I, I remember um, something that was written by uh, the, the great philosopher, uh, Raisa Maritain, who came to religion, came to faith, because she recognized the existence of holiness. It's not because of a philosophical argument. It wasn't because of a theological argument. These arguments are good once you do believe to help you strengthen and create a, a bigger and more robust and a more complex but, but closer to the truth understanding. But to make that first step, it has to be a step based on trust and love. And if you can be a person who says, yes, I got the vaccine, and uh, I'm not worried about it, and I'm happy because it means I can visit, you know, my brother-in-law who's in chemo right now, and I worry about him. Simply to say I still love you, even though I disagree with your stance, is a stronger argument. Unless you're in a position where the other person asks you, uh, "I don't understand. I'm afraid. How do I do it?" They have to come to you. You can't go to them first. It's much the same way as a person who is not, you know, has left the church. 
you're not going to get them back into the church by arguing with them. But you will get them back into the church by letting them see how religion makes you a richer, spiritually richer person, a per- which is to say a person more of love, a person more of, uh, of faith and trust in other people. I want to ask what you think about the phrase, um, look, follow the science, trust the science um, in the way that's typically wielded in, in our discourse today. If that phrase worked, then it would be a great phrase. (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, the scientific evidence is that the people who need to hear it aren't hearing it. They aren't hearing it correctly. But it's certainly true in the absence of anything else. We have to trust the science. It's what we've got. In the absence of anything else, we have to trust our conscience. But as the church says, you trust a well-formed conscience, and a well-formed conscience is one that has listened to authority. And I, I, I come up with two images that come out of uh, of G.K. Chesterton and you know his his wonderful book Orthodoxy. You're talking about the guardrails. He has an image in this book of children who are trying to play at the edge of a steep cliff. And because the cliff is steep and dangerous, they hide away from the cliff. They're afraid to to play in the entire field. But if you put a guardrail next to the cliff, then you're free to run around all the way up to the guardrail. It gives you more freedom. Guardrails give you freedom. And that's why we have them. So you're talking about conscience and freedom. I'm wondering from from a Catholic perspective, how how should we balance individual freedom, individual conscience, and and the common good uh, when it comes to comes to the COVID nineteen pandemic? Well, especially right now, a lot of people are saying things like, uh, "It's an individual, like that's a personal matter." Every every athlete, professional athlete that's asked about their COVID vaccine stances, mm-hmm. and if there's been evidence that they've been skeptical, they sort of default to like, look, that's a personal matter. It's an indiv- it's up to individuals to make that choice for themselves. Uh, what's the, yeah, Catholic response to something like that? That's, that's the great, uh, you know, American heresy that we're all rugged individualists. And the truth is there is nothing we can do that doesn't affect the people around us. There is no sin you can commit that you say, well, it doesn't hurt anybody but me. Because if you are hurt, then the people who love you are hurt, and the people around you are hurt. If you make an unwise choice about um, you know, taking care of your own health, you can wind up spreading the disease to utterly innocent people. And not only innocent people, but other guilty people. And just because you're guilty doesn't mean that, you know, it's okay to make you sick. <laughs> it's one, one of the fr- frustrating phrases I hear when in the pro-life movement um, is, oh, we have to protect innocent life. No, we have to protect all life, not just innocent life. It's not just that, you know, the number one, the theology of original sin says none of us are innocent. But even beyond that, it misses the point of what it means to be pro-life if you're not pro-all life. It misses the point of what it means to be part of a community if you're not making the choices that you have to make as an individual, but with having in mind 
how this is going to affect the rest of the community. And guess what? We're going to make mistakes. Every one of us is going to get it wrong at one time or another. There will be a time when, you know, a vaccine turns out to have a negative side effect that, in fact, that's happened in the past that, that we didn't recognize. It's going to be a time when the scientists are going to get it wrong. That doesn't mean that we distrust science. That doesn't mean that we distrust vaccines. That doesn't mean that uh, we distrust ourselves because we got it wrong once. That's why we have the Sacrament of Reconciliation, because we are going to get it wrong. In, in the grander scheme of the ecological crisis, there are two tempting extremes. One is to say, I am the master of the universe. Let me, I'm, I'm greater than the physical world. I can do whatever I want. The opposite, though, is to try to totally withdraw yourself from the universe, to say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to, you know, have technology because technology makes makes pollution. I'm not going to eat or breathe because eating and breathing, you know, contributes. You can't live that way. And what's more, God doesn't want us to live that way. This is not engaging in the universe. And this is the other half of the G.K. Chesterton quote, that the universe to Chesterton is neither a stern mother nor a slave that we can control, but a sibling. We are co-creatures in the universe made by the same father. And we can appreciate the rest of the universe the way we would appreciate a sister. And not just a sister, he says, but a little sister, a little dancing sister that you laugh at as well as love. But that also means that we have to accept the fact that sometimes we'll get it wrong. And when you get it wrong, you don't beat yourself up. You pick yourself up and you say, well, I'll do better the next time. Well, Brother Guy, thank you so much because my scientific education mostly did end with, with high school. <laughs> and so Same. I appreciate you coming on the show to to share with us and our listeners um, really the, what we need to like think about and approach, just not, not to following the science, but also how we relate to other people and our God. We do have one final question for you, though before we let you go. And we ask this of all our guests. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Um, since you throw in the fictional, my original thought was going to say, you know, poor Dr. Fauci. And not so much for the work he's done, but for the grief he's had to put up with from all the people who, you know, he was he never asked for that. But instead, I'm going to step back and go to another name that we've mentioned here, poor Frodo. I think Frodo is the saint for our time, the one who endures even though he knows he's fallible and he knows he's going to get it wrong, and the one who at the end of the day allows the people around him, good and bad, to contribute to the greater, uh, the greater goal of bringing us all closer to God. I cannot believe that no one has canonized someone from the Lord of the Rings yet on this podcast. That's so <laughs> you, I, I'm, I'm psyched about that. So thank you for that. Um, and Brother Guy, we want to make sure we plug some things for you. The Vatican Observatory has a new website, yes? Yes. Uh, it's a great website that shows people what we're doing and also has a lot of, uh, we put posts up every couple of days discussing issues of science and faith, whether it's, oh, look at this cool thing on the moon to... Um, the history of, you know, Galileo and how did we get to the mess that we're in? 
it, it's a lot of fun. And I love people to come to vaticanobservatory.org. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. And if and if you love this conversation, go back and listen to our first interview with Brother Guy as well. Yep. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Caught behind the nation blinds How to reach for the city lines This ain't where I belong Ain't looking me more what I become And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. You're up, Zach. All right. So this week, I uh, wanted to turn my prayer life or uh, this conversation to to pop culture a little bit, which I know gives you maybe a little anxiety. <laughs> um, if There's an ongoing joke we have where I'm teaching Ashley all the things she knows about pop culture. Yes. Anyway, put that, putting that aside, um, I've really been digging Netflix's Midnight Mass. Uh, mm. Which um, a few people tweeted at the at the show asking for our thoughts on it. Here's my thought: I, I love it, right? And I'm not going to get into the show too specifically right now. Um, we might do something with that later on, so stay tuned. But for people who haven't heard of this, it's a it's a Netflix horror TV series where Catholicism features explicitly and prominently in a way that's not as a caricature, right? You've got you've got people who are you've got priests, you've got religious zealots, you've got people who are you know. Former Catholics, recovering Catholics, anti-Catholics, like all existing in this, and also non-Catholic people, just sort of on the outside in general, existing in this community that is plagued by some some supernatural things happening. The reason I brought it up is because uh, when I've been talking to some people about this, it's it's so nice to just kind of see that culture reflected in a way that's not not caricatured or it's not a stereotype. Because oftentimes, I think when I think as young Catholics, we have this experience of when the church is. Uh, shows up in either in the news or pop culture, it's often a source of like embarrassment or shame. And so to see it just kind of exist on its own, it was, I don't know, really, really moving it, you know, helped me connect to my, my sense of understanding who, who I am as a Catholic in this, in this landscape that we live in. Hmm. Yeah. This, as you mentioned, I'm less pop culture oriented, but I have a similar experience. Um, with our second Catholic president of just like seeing, you know, normal Catholic life, you know, represented at like the very high level of government. So, you know, just like casual, like peek at the rosary around President Biden's wrist or him saying or quoting from on eagle's wings in his prayer. I feel like I've similarly moved by things like that. But I guess in in the pop culture w- world, I've had a similar experience with movies like Lady Bird, which we talked about yeah. on this show, where it's, you know, it's Catholic school and the nun is not like the scary person like slapping people on the wrist with rulers, but this really wise and loving figure, which I think is more reflective of at least people of our generation's experience of of religious sisters. So seeing that, seeing that reflected and being able to like, you know, just in, with your Catholic friends kind of like have sessions where you're comparing notes. It's like, oh, yeah. is that what that was 
like your experience at mass or at Catholic school? It does feel like it's fostering like it, that type of thing fosters community when it mm-hmm. gets in, it, you know, reaches this bubbling point in culture the way that Lady Bird or this show has. Um, where you, we, you know, everybody's enjoying it. It's not just Catholics, but the Catholics can kind of get together and be like, yeah. oh, did you see <laughs> like the, the vestments were the right color, the wrong color? Um, so um, I that's the main thing, the, the sense of community it's fostering. So the question I want to leave you with this week is what's a piece of pop culture that made you feel like represented uh, either your faith, um, whether it's Catholic or not, or or some other part of your identity that you felt didn't you know reduce it to something that it wasn't, but also you know establish that same sense of community with you. So think of an example. All right, I will get us out. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.